A new issue of Live Happy Magazine is coming out, and we're gathering around the microphones to share our favorite facts on this episode of Live Happy Now. The ancient Greeks defined happiness as the joy you feel moving towards your potential. To think about positive psychology, it's a science, and it's actually younger than the Internet, believe it or not. The reality is that social connection is, in the research, the greatest predictor we have of long-term happiness. You have some factors in your control that can promote the health and resilience and growth of your absolutely most important asset, which is your brain. And so it all comes down to understanding ourselves. There's a way for all of us to succeed, but, but it might take different things. We're all looking for the same thing, and that's a way to bring a little bit more joy to our day. Join us as we look at the many different paths that lead us to that happy place. This is Live Happy Now. Hello and greetings and welcome to another edition of the Live Happy Now podcast. I'm your host, J.R. Houston. I'm thanking you for joining us wherever you are in the world or however you may be listening. And we are very excited because a new issue of Live Happy magazine is about to hit newsstands or your device if you're getting the digital edition, which we encourage you to do so. It's available in the Apple Store and the Google Play Store, and you can put it on your phones and devices and take it with you wherever you want to go. So please pick it up. But we also are having a fun new way to introduce you to that issue. It's something that, uh, well, frankly, we ripped off from one of our favorite podcasts, the QI Institute's No Such Thing as a Fish. What they do on that podcast is they're a research institute, so they gather their four favorite facts of the week, gather around the microphones, and share those facts and discuss them. So we decided to gather around the microphones with our three favorite facts from this edition of the magazine. And joining us on this episode is section editor Chris Libby. Welcome to the show. Hello. And we've got science editor Paula Phelps. Paula, welcome to the show. Why, thank you. Well, we're very, I'm very excited to have you both here. Let me just point out, first of all, that Chris Libby is radio gold with that yup. You don't have to do anything else on this episode. You'll be fine. Just make sure you're talking into the microphone and you're good. All right. I'm done. So what we're going to do here is we're going to go in no particular order and share our favorite facts from the magazine. And let's start with Chris Libby. Chris, what's your fact? Uh, my fact is more public parks and green spaces can make your city smile. Okay. Yeah. Is that uh, – so how did we come to that conclusion? In a recent study, a collaborative study between a lot of different factions, uh, the Trust for Public Land, the, the Gallup Wellbeing Health Index, and, you know, the United States Forest Service, uh, University of North Carolina – or North Carolina State University – uh, is this giant collaborative study, Public Parks and Wellbeing in Urban Areas in the United States, that said uh, when you have more green space and more maintained structured areas like trails, parks, mm-hmm. basketball, stuff like that, it can provide a variety of benefits to your, your mental health, your physical health, and just the social connectivity to the community as a whole. So, Which I'm sure would have benefited Leslie Nope on uh... – NBC's Parks and Recreation. She would have loved that information. She might have gotten something done in that city. Uh, I did a little research on this project, just did a little fact-finding mission. And according to the U.S. Park Service, the top 10 cities for parks are Minneapolis, St. Paul in Minnesota, Washington, D.C., Arlington, Virginia, San Francisco, California, Portland, Oregon, New York City. I don't think I need to mention the state. Uh, Irvine, California, Boston, Massachusetts, and Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And they all fall within the top 100 happiest cities, according to Wallet Hub. In fact, D.C. places 10th, 
along with Arlington, Virginia, is the same metro area. San Francisco places fourth in happiness, and Irvine, California places third in happiness. And I did a little further research, too, and looked at the cities where we come from. Paula uh, lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Paula, your city is the 71st happiest city in the United States. And you have the 55th best parks. Not too bad, right? I mean, yeah, I would I would have guessed us a little higher, but I live across the street from a state park, so maybe I'm a little biased. Yeah, I think so. you're a little bit biased. Chris and I, you and I live in Plano, Texas. Mm-hmm. Plano is the 18th happiest city yep. in the United States and has the 18th best park system. Yeah. So yeah. there's clearly some kind of of correlation there. Paula, like from a scientific standpoint, why do, is there like, why? Why would that, besides the social connectivity thing, what, what's happening in our brains when we see a park? We're going, yes. <laughs> well, it's interesting because John Rady has done a lot of research on this. He wrote the book Go Wild and has done a lot of research into how different things affect our brain, including how we eat and, and how nature affects our brain. And there is uh, a certain reaction that our brain has. Our love for nature is called biophilia. Hmm. And getting out in nature actually changes the way our brain is functioning. It takes us out of that looking at my computer, being focused on myself. You have to start looking around you. You start feeling more expansive. Uh, you start giving your attention to things other than your iPhone or else you're going to trip. And, you, you know, it does. It gives you a great sense of being connected with something larger than yourself. And that helps it helps you slow your brain down. Your brain slows your breathing down. All these there's just a domino effect of reactions that it has throughout your body. One thing that I also noticed too, Chris, and maybe you've got more on this, is when I was doing the like the Gallup, I went through that Gallup survey about the city's overall well-being score, and obviously everything plays into this, whether it's you know access to healthcare or median income and housing availability, all plays into this. But if you look at the cities that have the higher well-being scores, it's places like Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, Boulder, Colorado, and places that even if their city parks aren't necessarily ranked in the top 100 or whatever. There's mountains right by Boulder. There's beautiful beaches and mountains right by Honolulu. Like, is it just access to nature that's playing a role into this too? Accessibility is a big factor. And in fact, there is something to that, to having that natural setting. Uh, Minneapolis, for instance, uh, I talked to them for the story that's going to be coming out in our next issue about lakes study do lakes is it lakes yes i guess right (laughs) but not just that the whole city was actually built around the park system about 130 years ago wow and their parks board is a separate agency from the city where a lot of cities your parks department's going to be looped in with yeah uh, it's folded in it's just another department like public works or whatever so but in minneapolis which is uh rated for the fifth year in a row by the Trust for Public Land, which is a group that rates mm-hmm. uh, the park systems in the United States. They, by far, spend a lot more money per person, about $220 per person on their park system. Whereas That's incredible. In Plano, which is 18th, they spend about $120. The, on the lower end, where a few cities in Indiana, like Indianapolis, they only spend like $30 per person. So you can see the difference. Money is a factor. People, they have to want these things and vote these things in through bond initiatives and elections. But it's got to be a mindset, too. Yeah. You you have to want these things and spend money on them. Well, there's something to that because you said it's got to be a mindset. Minneapolis and St. Paul obviously are right next to each other. They're the Mm -hmm. twin cities, and they're one in two in their park system rating. So that's something that Minnesotans 
Minnesotans, they obviously <laughs> value that. Yeah. And apparently the D.C. metro area also. <laughs> well, interesting, interestingly enough, they have the most parkland, uh, dedicated parkland in the country, if I remember. Which I guess correctly. would make sense because the National Mall is probably considered in that, too, and all the different monuments yes. in, in D.C. as well. I guess Arlington would have to – would the cemetery be in that? Uh, or is know, that not considered – I mean, I know people go there and spend an awful lot of time there being reflective, mm-hmm. but I don't know if that's considered parkland or not. Well, it's it's a mixture of public city parkland and uh, state parkland because okay. their their situation is a little bit more unique uh, right. than a normal city. But yeah, they they do spend a lot of money on their parks. Excellent. Well, it's it's always fascinating stuff, and I guess one thing that I we would suggest to people maybe is if there are uh, opportunities for you to speak your mind about your park system in your city, push for it because it will benefit the city. In many, many ways. Yeah, there was a recent study that just came out that having access to parks and trails is the most cost-effective way to reduce your health care or health costs right. and stay healthy. Well, it makes sense. Like yeah. you're getting outside, you're not leading that sedentary lifestyle, mm-hmm. and you're conversing with people in the park. Like especially if you're doing pickup basketball games, which yeah. I know you and Paula are <laughs> big-time ballers. Totally. Yeah, I was just playing a little one-on-one right before this call. So. Yeah, you're you're hooping it and calling your own fouls, and I, I don't even what, – what's the terminology? I sound like the biggest dork oh, alive. Good. yeah. Yeah, am I a baller? Yeah. Shot caller? Straight up. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good note to end on that yeah. fact. Paula is our next fact. Paula, what have you got for us? I've got uh, something on the topic of awe, and that is that you can actually slow down time by doing things that fill you with awe. I believe that's what the share song is about, correct? <laughs> you will have to sing that for me. I am not going to do that. Libby? Oh. No. No. <laughs> no takers? How, how does that work? It's, uh, it's obviously it's our perception of time, which is perception is everything, but how does exactly. the science behind that work? Well, it's very interesting. There's been a lot of studies that show people feel like we're more pressed for time than we actually are. And we're kind of bringing some of that on ourselves because we're multitasking and we're trying to. It's, it, it used to be, well, I have to go to work and I have to do these, this logical sequence of things. And now you're going to work. And while you're doing that, you're also getting pinged on Facebook and you're getting texts from your children and you have all these different things going on. So you feel like you have more to do. And it starts giving us the perception that that we have this time famine and we cannot get enough things done. Uh, Now, when we experience awe, that's really an emotion that puts us in the present. When we are filled with awe, we have to stop. It it demands our entire being, and and we're really focusing on it. And so what's happening is our brain gets to relax. We're not cramming 80 things into it. We're cramming one thing at that time. Um, And so studies, there's a professor of marketing at Bauer College in Houston named Melanie Rudd, and she's done some studies about this, and it's shown that when people are – experiencing awe and then they write about it later they actually felt they had more time they feel like more time passed because they experienced they they smelled things they saw this they felt all this and as they thought about it it just seemed like that had to last yes you know 12 minutes and it might have been two and and the benefit of that is then people who start feeling they have more time are more likely to go out and volunteer uh, to do things for others and then so you get another little benefit because you get 
that helper's high from that you get when you go out and do things for other people. That's interesting. I read somewhere once about uh, it was an astronaut on the Apollo 8 mission, and this is the second time I've brought this up on the podcast. That's how much this fact really struck me. Uh, the last time I was talking to an astronaut, and I brought it up, and he's like, yeah, I guess. Uh, but you guys are going to be really impressed by this fact. It was an Apollo 8 astronaut, and that was the first uh, Apollo mission that went around the, the moon, correct? I don't know. Paula, do you remember? Um <laughs> I'm science, not history. Oh, okay. Sorry. I just figured you were around and I, you know. Um, uh, but they looked back at Earth and they, you can see the whole planet. You can see everybody who's on that planet except for your two crewmates. And that in that moment, it completely changed his outlook on uh, politics, humanity, charity, and all those things. Because you realize in this awesome moment, truly awesome moment, where you stand in the world and how much that world means. Cause everybody, you know, everybody who's ever been is already right there on that planet. Hmm. Yeah. Is there moments that you've been awestruck recently, Chris? Uh, every time I go to the ocean, I get awestruck. It just makes yeah. you realize how small you are. And, Oh uh, yeah. Um, so that, and because I don't get a chance to get down there very often when I'm there, it just totally sucks me in. Oh yeah. I, I can imagine like you, <laughs> my, my moment, I guess, besides seeing space, which I've never done, was going to Fenway Park. Like, I'm a huge baseball fan, and that place has been around since 1912, and all these great players have played there. All the best players in American League Baseball for 100 years have played there. And in that moment, you're just struck by that. And then the baseball starts, and you don't want to leave in time speeds right back up again. But that's was kind of my moment, just walking around. I'm like, oh, man, I must have been doing this for an hour. It's probably in the third inning, and we still have 30 minutes to first pitch. Mm-hmm. Paula, do you have a moment that left you awestruck? Uh, yes, I do. We went to Antarctica in oh, wow. probably about five years ago, and it's like visiting another planet. And not only do you have the this vastness around you, which is one of the contributors of all, when you see something that's so much bigger than you, that induces awe. And so we not only had that vastness and coldness, uh, but there was there was literally no sound other than other people breathing. It was completely still. And it was really unlike anything that can even be described to adequately tell you how that experience went. But it really, there was something about that that I could feel it changing me. Like We spent about five days there, and, and there really was a difference from the time we got there until I left. And I really think it's because of how awestruck I was that entire time. I would have spent my time pretending I was Luke Skywalker in Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> That's just me. What about what you? You had something, Libby. Uh, yeah, Paula. What about finding? Because when we talk about awe, we do talk about these giant things and being a small part of it. But what about finding awe in the small things? Oh yeah, that's terrific. There's a I cannot remember the name of the writer who said you can find awe in a blade of grass. You know, you can look for anything that you can show an appreciation for that you can really slow down and look at and marvel at. I think, you know, Chris, you've got two young children. This is probably a a great thing that you'll be able to experience and already have with uh, your your first daughter, where when you're experiencing it through their eyes and everything is new, and the first time they see a butterfly or the first time they see something that we take for granted, and and you get that that sense of awe that fills you entirely. Um, so it doesn't, yeah, vastness is a is a big contributor, but you can look for the simplest things and study those and find awe in those moments as well. Yeah, yeah, no, and 
with my first daughter, like it doesn't snow very often here in Texas, but whenever we get snow, oh man, and they get out there and see that for the first time. Um, but there was one time when I was in San Diego at the San Diego Zoo, and I kind of wandered off from uh, my pack, and then I somehow got in the middle of a of a you know a class from uh, of school children from Mexico. And they were all around me, and they were, uh, of course, speaking in Spanish, but they were, you know, having a good time. And yeah. I was just in the middle of it by accident. And, and they I were just... intrigued by your red hair. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 sorry. <laughs> yeah, they thought I escaped. Uh... <laughs> um, but I, I just remember feeling that moment. It's like, man, this is really great. Uh, I had a real, I had a great sense of awe just being in the middle of that because uh, I did, couldn't understand anything they were saying. They were all so happy, and it, you know, it was just a great moment that always sticks out in my life. But yeah, I, I guess I had something similar to that where we were in Chinatown in uh, Oakland, California, and it's like the markets are set up like I imagine Chinese markets are. I've never been to China, but it's very crowded and you go up and you make your deal and you get the heck out of the way. And everybody's speaking Chinese or I guess it's Mandarin, but whatever languages they're speaking there, I had no idea what was going on. And I'm just standing there going, this is so cool. (laughs) Like, I feel like I'm in a different country and I'm only in California. This is awesome. Wow. That's great. And I also like that Paula brought up the blade of grass thing because my wife uh, is a city kid, very much a city kid. Mm -hmm. And she told me one time, there's a picture of me discovering grass for the first time and being awestruck by it. And I'm picturing like a nine-year-old, like, what does this mean? What is this crazy green hair growing upon the ground? And no, it's like her as a baby just mesmerized by grass but it's like paula said when you see things with a childlike sense of awe and you see everything that Mm -hmm. way it can it can really make the world a special place if your wife were here she'd probably be blushing right now by that (laughs) (laughs) or throwing things at you (laughs) both but and you know what the great thing is let me let me add one thing real quick you know the great thing about this is we can get that experience every day because you can go watch a sunset every night or for those of you who like getting up, sunrise. Um, but, you know, that is a great quick fix to just take a breath and, and get that awe experience. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to our final fact. And anyone who has ever seen me before will find this uh, incredibly uh, funny that I picked this fact. But there are five characteristics that most long-lived cultures seem to share. And one of them is that they don't exercise. Believe it or not, it's that they don't exercise. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no physical movement. It just means that in those cultures, they have not done what a lot of us have done in our lives and eliminated natural movement. So we have machines that are doing everything for us. They're actually, you know, still going down to the river to wash their clothes and, you know, beating them dry or knocking the dust out of their rugs or moving around the house to cook things. Or they're actually going out and going hunting and doing these things. I thought that was an incredible, incredible thing. Yeah. Um, and Paula, you can probably speak more to this. Uh, it sounds a lot like uh, Dan Buettner's Blue Zones. Um, That's exactly where it came from. Yeah. yeah, he spoke at the World Government Summit in Dubai. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's basically staying active. And th- these people are living well beyond their 70s into their 80s, 90s, and even past 100. And staying active is a big part of of yeah. their life and it, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be high impact but they're walking a lot they're moving a lot mm-hmm. they're doing they're hanging out with people they like 
a lot, and that's a good part. That's a big part. So that gym membership where you're, you know, doing all the exercise and you're hanging out with people you don't like, not worth it. That's what you're getting at is. Because it is. It's like it might be something like gardening. It could be something, you know, it's not necessarily strenuous movement. It's just that they keep. They do keep moving. Some of the other things that uh, some other commonalities that we've found in these blue zones that uh, Chris was talking about is they have more meaning in their lives. Mm -hmm. They have strong family ties. They are religious and they have a like minded social network. And I think one thing that we've talked a lot about here is the strong family ties and the like minded social network. If you feel is it because you feel like you're part of something bigger? I mean, that I I think that has incredible benefits to people's well-being, but is that why those things help or what? Well, I think uh, as a species, we're just social. We're a social species. We like yeah. to feel connected with people. So we isolate ourselves. We get lonely, and then that starts to wear onto your well-being, and, and it's bad for your health. Uh, there's been Yeah, no- loneliness is actually more fatal than smoking. Hmm. Yeah. hmm. But the family ties thing, too, is these are the places that typically it's expected that the grandparents are going to mm-hmm. live uh, in your house at some point. Yeah. And they, they really care for their elders. Yeah, a lot of uh, societies in different countries, uh, they really focus on multi-generational living. Yeah. Uh, it's cheaper, um, and but there's also a lot of uh, benefits to it for the, because older people can help teach the young people and everybody learns together and right i mean you could get cramped and crowded and you know and you never have to teach your grandparents how to use the dvd machine because it's also your dvd machine you could just put it in form i also wonder if there's not a practical thing about that like if you're in a multi-generational house and you're the one that's taking care of your grandparent is it only natural though that you're going to maybe provide better or more attentive care to them than somebody who's a third-party person. And that's not a knock on nursing homes and people mm-hmm. who are because that's incredible work that I admire. But like I, I But think... there is there's you're going to care you're going to truly care for them. Right. And from the aspect of the the older person, uh, one thing Dan brought up in his talk is they don't have the anxiety that we do here in, a lot in the US of where I'm what's going to happen to me when I'm old. You know, yeah. I've heard so many people who are, like, afraid their kids are going to put them in a nursing home. I don't want to die in a nursing home. I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. In these cultures where families really care for each other, that's not even a consideration or a concern. So you eliminate that anxiety. And anytime you can get rid of worry in your life, you, you're you boosting your well-being. You're probably – you should be more empathetic to all people, but you probably show more empathy to, you know, your – direct family more than yeah i think so stranger, and i and like you said you should be showing empathy to everybody mm-hmm. but yeah it's only natural that grandpa who you've known forever is going to be someone that you're working extra hard to make sure is care for as opposed to uh you know mr smith who is mm-hmm. same age same generation but you didn't know him until he was in that condition another thing that i found interesting is religion is a part of it. And it's not a specific religion. We're not saying, you know, Buddhists live longer or Christians or, or Muslims or whatever. But is that belief in something? Is that another one of those, oh, it's it's something bigger than me? It's something I can put faith in? Why would that have a role in it? I think it's also because, again, you have another social element. Because people who too. attend people who attend a religious service four times a month, so once a week, live on average 14 years longer. Than yeah, people who don't. Well, and like like you said, it's a social thing. Like I, the church I went to growing up, 
there was always the church service at whatever, like eight for the for the early folks, and like ten thirty. And then afterwards, there was always something going on at the church afterwards, whether it was um, a speaker that was coming along, or the kids were going to put on their little program, or we were just going to have uh, like on Super Bowl Sunday. There was always a soup or bowl Sunday, and you could get soup <laughs> with everybody. Like, there's definitely a social aspect to to at least what my religion was, and I assume many other religions are the same way. Maybe not, but it's community, I think. And like going back to that loneliness thing, when you you don't feel quite as lonely, you take away that stress. Right. Whatever it is that you believe, if you believe that you're being taken care of, then I think that's better for your mental well-being. The other thing that uh, the last one is that that folks find more meaning in these places. And I think that's very key too because if you don't feel like what you're doing matters or the person you are matters, what will do you have to go on, I guess, right? Yeah, uh, meaning is is very uh it's a very important thing. Um and when you you lose that meaning, I think you kind of lose your sense of purpose, you lose Yeah. Um the it's interesting. Uh, I was just reading a book, and there was a, um, a line from Viktor Frankl who said, who uh, talked about logotherapy, which is the uh, science of purpose. Oh, I thought it purpose. was the science of figuring out which one's <laughs> Nike, which one's Under Armour. No, it's not that. Okay. No, it's not that. Okay. And they the question that they always ask is, what are you living for? And uh, instead of what would you die for, what are you living for? And that's where you would find your purpose. And he flipped the whole paradigm <laughs> when you think of it that way. All right. That's going to do it. That's all of our facts for this issue of Live Happy Magazine. And uh, we do encourage you to pick up a copy. It's got a nice uh, picture of Jim Gaffigan on the front. And it's got uh, stories on park systems and happiness. It's got stories on feeling awe. It's got stories on the blue zones and areas where people are living longer. And it's also got Jim Gaffigan talking about uh, laughing. It's got Tony Hale from Veep. Uh, also, Arrested Development uh, is one of Tony Hale's uh, uh, big uh, shows. We've also uh, got uh, folks talking about getting outside and living up this summer. So, Please pick up a copy of Live Happy Magazine. It is going to be available on newsstands and the digital edition in the Google Play and the Apple App Store. We thank you for joining us. For Chris Libby, our section editor, for Paula Phelps, our science editor, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long and thank you for helping us to live happy.